Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Once upon a time, there was a lovely party in the suburbs. The partygoers were mostly middle-aged mothers and fathers, but the guest of honor was much younger. Hey, there's the award-winning scholar. We're all very proud of you, Ben. Thank you, Mrs. Carlson. Is that the new car out there, that little red wop child? That's Ben's graduation. Well, you won't have much trouble picking up on that, will you? Sir. The girls, the chicks, the teeny boppers. Oh, I think Ben's gotten me on the teeny bopper stage, haven't you, Ben? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Benjamin Braddock had just graduated from college, and he was aiming to find his way in the world, which is when he got a piece of advice that didn't just stick with him, it stuck with a lot of us. I just want to say one word to you. Just one word. Yes, sir. Are you listening? Yes, I am. Plastics. Exactly. How do you mean? There's a great future in plastics. Think about it. Will you think about it? Yes, I will. Braddock didn't actually think much about plastics as a career opportunity, in part because he wasn't a real person. He was the main character in a 1967 movie called The Graduate. But the advice he got said a lot about America's love of stuff. I think by that time, plastic, which had once been seen as this kind of magical stuff, was considered this, you know, ersatz, kitschy, cheap, crappy material. Susan Frankel is a science journalist and the author of the book Plastic, A Toxic Love Story. And the idea of a life working in this stuff, which, you know, was sort of the ultimate fake thing, just couldn't seem like, you know, a a drearier, deader existence for, you know, baby boomer Benjamin Braddock. Frankel says that that moment in The Graduate, when Dustin Hoffman, who plays Braddock, looks stone-faced as a friend of his parents tells him his future is in plastic. That moment was a turning point. It reflected a movement against the material that had come to symbolize 20th century America, a material we fell head over heels for that helped us win a war that revolutionized medicine and that then started to clog the environment and, as Frankel said, people began to think of as crap. More recently, it has prompted headlines about health risks. You're sort of kidding yourself if you think you can protect yourself from all of these hazards. Fundamentally, this is like the one area where I feel like we need stronger, tougher chemical laws if we're really going to ensure that we don't have things in our lives that are dangerous. We'll get back to plastic and health a little later on. But here's something to keep in mind as you unwrap Legos and Barbies and DVD players and new lawn furniture this holiday. I don't think that we can get a divorce. I, I think plastic is too internet into modern life and in ways that are good and in ways that we want. The modern world created plastic, and plastic, strange as it may seem, helped create the modern world, for better or for worse. As journalist Susan Frankel discovered when she tried to go one day, just one day, without touching plastic. And so I got up that morning and walked into the bathroom, and the first thing I looked at was the plastic toilet seat, and then my plastic toothbrush, and then my plastic toothpaste tube. And, you know, I realized there was no way I could get through a day and not touch anything plastic. So, you know, I quickly revised the plan and decided to spend the day writing down everything. (laughs) Right. An easier route. An easier route. And by day's end, I had a much bigger list than I'd ever imagined and a much more varied list than I'd ever imagined. Hmm. 
the subtitle of your book, as I said, is A Toxic Love Story. There's kind of two pieces of that. Let's start with the love piece first. What is it about plastics when you just talk about that, like even just your bathroom? And oh, my God, we haven't gone into the kitchen yet and talked about all the fruit that we buy. And almost all of it is in some kind of plastic, solid or um, sort of soft, you know, plastic container. What is it about plastic that has made us just fall in love with it? Well, you know, plastic isn't one thing. It's a lot of different materials. And we've gotten very good at making them. We've gotten very good at taking these molecules and turning them into the things that we want them to be. I mean, plastic by definition is malleable, it's moldable, and we can make it for cheap. And so thanks to plastic, we've managed to create this enormously varied, kind of dazzlingly distinctive and and differentiated and exciting, colorful world in the mold of all the things that we want. Um, It took a long time for the industry and, and chemists and scientists to figure out how to do that. But at this point, we're pretty darn good at it. Mm-hmm. And like I said, we're able to sort of create this material abundance for ourselves on the cheap. And, you know, that's always a pretty appealing proposition. When you talk to, you know, when you use that phrase, a toxic love story, when do you think our relationship became toxic or has it always been toxic from the beginning of the relationship? No, I mean, I, you know, I used that phrase because I do very much think there is this kind of arc in our relationship with this stuff where we kind of became entranced and dazzled by it. It insinuated itself into our lives. And then we find ourselves very dependent on this stuff, which in many ways has some serious problems for, you know, our health Mm -hmm. and our environment. In the 30s, pollsters asked Uh, Americans what their favorite word in the English language was, and um, cellophane was in the top three along with motherhood and memory. (laughs) So, you know. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, (laughs) my how the mighty have fallen. I mean, it... it, That was also a plastic, but it had a very sort of different kind of tantalizing feel to people. So I think, you know, 67 is one period. The graduate is one marking point of the start of the tarnishing of the love affair. Hmm. And, you know, and then there have sort of been different periods along the way. I mean, obviously, the discovery in uh, the early 2000s of this giant portion of the North Pacific Ocean where trash accumulates and where a huge amount of it is plastic. People call it the Great Garbage Patch. That has brought about a a great disenchantment, I think, and really sort of made people wake up to the consequences of our reliance on plastic, in particular, sort of disposable, single-use plastics. Hmm. Was there a moment in history when something changed and plastics became just explosive in their growth and sort of led to what we see now in this kind of really, really plastic-colored world we live in? I think the big turning point in the production was in the period following World War II, or really during the war and following it. Up until World War II, plastics had a kind of small place in people's lives. But um, a lot of plastics had been invented in within sort of the petrochemical industry. A lot of them, people didn't really know what to do with and hadn't found applications for them. And it wasn't until World War II that some of these plastics sort of found their place or found uses. So for Hmm. instance, you know, bugles for the army, which would have been made of brass, 
a toy company in New Jersey suddenly started producing plastic bugles, which the Army could use. Huh. Magnify that, you know, many, many times. And by the end of the war, you have what had been a pretty nascent industry had built up a pretty good production capacity. And you have a consuming public that for you know, 20 years through the Depression and the war has been scrimping and saving and is now ready to actually start living fuller lives, you know, Mm -hmm. and they're flush with money from the GI Bill and so forth. So you put those two things together and what happens is an explosion in both plastics production and plastics consumption. And suddenly you have, you know, plastic going into all sorts of different things. You've got plastic fabrics, you've got, you know, plastic being used for, you know, TVs and stereos and in furniture and in kitchen counters and the lining of refrigerators and in toys. That became a huge application for plastic following the war, thanks to the baby boom. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you look at a graph of plastics production in the decade after the war, it rose on something like the order of 500 percent. It does seem like those two, these two things, like the rise of plastics and the baby boom are so intertwined. I mean, It's hard to imagine now a toy industry that does not have Barbie in it or G.I. Joe or (laughs) Legos, right? And all these things, these are mountains and mountains and mountains of plastic. So in some ways, you know, we heard the clip from The Graduate earlier. It's no surprise that by, you know, that 20 years into the baby boom, people are saying plastics, that's the ticket. It's just... you know, it's hard to imagine now, like, this world without plastics. I I think I interviewed someone who said, you know, plastic is one of the great business stories of the 20th century, and it really was and is. I mean, Mm -hmm. if you look at plastic, that industry has been on a basically upward line since the mid-20th century, with a slight blip around the 2008 recession. And I can't think of any other industry that has grown that way. Right. We'll talk about some of the downsides of plastics in a minute, but I want to talk about some of the upsides. Um, You write about how plastic revolutionized medicine. And unless you spend a lot of time in a hospital, your nurse, your doctor or something, you may not think about all the plastic that's involved in medicine. But do you want to talk a little bit about how medicine changed because of plastic? Well, I remember being in the hospital when my mother was ill and looking around her room and realizing that everything that surrounded it, everything that surrounded us was plastic, including, you know, a good part of the synthetic joint that went into her new hip. Plastic provided, um, gosh, it's hard to think of what it didn't provide. I mean, it provided sanitary equipment, the ability to have disposable equipment. It provided new kinds of medical devices. It's the, you know, casing for things like MRIs. It's in, you know, fine instruments. Um, it's the bags with blood. It's the bags with IV fluid. It's the, it's, when you get a shot, what is that, you know, holder made out of that the nurse is giving you? Plastic. Exactly, exactly. Thank you. Well put. I tell the story about IV bags, which was a dramatic and huge innovation, because up until that point, blood had been collected in glass bottles, which was not the greatest system, if for no other reason that they were prone to break. The idea of having a flexible blood bag was an absolute revolution. It meant that people could... um, collect blood more easily, store it more easily. You didn't have to rely on gravity simply for the blood to flow. I mean, there were just a lot of possibilities that came about through that plastic 
vinyl IV bag. Would you guess that plastic then has saved a lot of lives when you think about what it's done in medicine? Oh, I, you know, yes. I mean, you could not have modern medicine without plastic at this point. I mean, just take another example, disposable syringes. Could you imagine navigating something like the AIDS epidemic without disposable syringes? Plastic has saved tons of lives. Hmm. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Susan Frankel, author of the book Plastic, A Toxic Love Story. When you think about sort of the dangers that exist from plastic, and we see headlines all the time about different ingredients in plastic that some new study has said is "Mm, maybe not so good and maybe should be pulled out of plastics. Do you worry? I mean, you know how much of your life and the world around you is made of plastic, coated in plastic, whatever. Um, Do you worry about the other side of this, which is the effect of plastic on your health in a negative way? Well, it's a complicated issue. Not all plastics are bad. There are some bad plastics. There are some plastics that contain chemicals that may be hazardous to our health. It's not acute hazards like lead or radioactive materials. The chief danger of some of the chemicals that are in some plastics is that they may disrupt or interfere with hormones in our bodies. And probably the worst impacts there have more to do with the timing of exposure. There are certain periods in in our lives, you know, when we're in the womb, when we're newborn, when we're, we're entering puberty. There are certain vulnerable periods in people's lives where they're more susceptible to the dangers of their hormones being disrupted. And there are some plastics that seem to have that effect. I mean, plastics are emblematic of a much bigger problem, which is that we are surrounded by thousands and thousands of industrial chemicals that haven't been adequately vetted for their safety. And that's not just in plastics. Mm-hmm. I mean, that is in all sorts of things. When you know the CDC does analyses of the chemicals that are in people's bloodstreams, we're all harboring dozens of industrial chemicals at very, very minute traces. I mean, it's not like we're carrying, you know, a quart of PCBs in our systems or DDT in our systems. These are very small trace amounts, but there's growing evidence that trace amounts can affect our health. Hmm. What I worry about is less any individual chemical than that sort of stew of synthetical chemicals that we are all marinating in all the time. Are there things on the market right now that um, you would avoid that, you know, given what you know about plastics, you might, you know, kind of stay away from certain kinds of ingredients or certain types of plastics? Yes and no. (laughs) I think vinyl is a bad plastic. It's made with really toxic stuff to begin with. It's really only usable when you add a lot of chemicals to it. Um, And the phthalates that are used to make it flexible, we know that they migrate out and Hmm. we know that they can get into humans who come into contact with them. So I think, you know, soft vinyls are not a great thing. I would try to reduce my exposure to them. Um, where where do you find vinyl, by the way? Like wh- where that people commonly go or what they commonly handle might be made of vinyl? Shower curtains, flip-flops, um, certain toys, although less toys anymore. I mean, I you know, Kara, I am not an alarmist person. I sort of feel like 
it's very difficult for an individual to um, encase themselves in a world where they're not exposed to this stuff. If I had small children, if I was pregnant, I would be much more careful than I am as a middle-aged, you know, woman beyond that time in my life. I think as a policy... If you did have small children, what would you be more careful about? I would be careful about vinyl if I had small children. I would be careful about how many canned goods I fed them because we know that the linings of a lot of cans are made with bisphenol A, which is another uh, chemical. It's a epoxy that has been linked with... Um, disruption of estrogen, and again, has been linked with a bunch of health effects related to that. Mm -hmm. I would be careful about water bottles because, again, there have been some phthalates and things that have leached out of water bottles. I think those are the big ones. We have certainly seen over the last few years, um, whether it is companies like Starbucks saying, you know, um, we want to not have straws or reduce the use of straws to, you know, reduce our environmental footprint, or whether it's um, individual towns and cities saying we're not going to have plastic bags like to bag groceries in this town, or we're not going to even have plastic water bottles. That has happened in towns. What do you think of that sort of movement? What do you make of it? On the one hand, I think it's great. People are becoming more cognizant of all the manifold ways that we rely on plastic and we take these materials, you know, which frankly are high value materials. They're, they're made of fossil fuels, you know, limited fossil fuels, and they're being used for these very stupid, trivial things that something else could easily stand in for. Mm-hmm. But the fact of the matter is we could ban every plastic straw in existence today We could ban every plastic bag in existence today, and that's an infinitesimal fraction Mm -hmm. of all the plastic that is out there. These are important sort of symbolic gateway things, but a third of all the plastic produced goes into packaging, and bags and straws and these kind of single-use things are just a very small piece of that packaging stream of of what I call sort of prefab litter Hmm. to really deal with the problems, the environmental problems posed by plastics requires more than straw bands. Hmm. Um, And then finally, so many of us like, you know, have recycling bins and we dutifully recycle the that plastic container our strawberries came in or a plastic water bottle or that plastic thing that our salad came in or whatever. Are we actually any good at recycling plastic? No, we're really bad at it. I mean, the whole world is. The current estimate is something worldwide, something like less than 10% of all plastic is ever recycled. Some countries do a better job on a countrywide basis, do a better job. In the U.S., we've never topped 10%. And it's a tough problem. I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of plastics. You can't recycle that plastic water bottle with that plastic bag or with that cup. If they're made of different plastics, mm-hmm. they can't be recycled in the same way. And really up until January, you know, the main thing that happened with plastic that went into recycling in this country was that it went to China and China did the job for mm-hmm. us. You know, Though we we don't do a good job on it, I would hate to see us abandon that. I mean, again, this is stuff that we have made from fossil fuels. We've scraped it from the ground. 
great expense and, and effort and political debate, and it just seems stupid to waste it or to just landfill it. I mean, we, we have to sort of find a way to, to make recycling a plastic work. Hmm. Susan Frankel is a science writer. She's the author of the book Plastics, a toxic love story. Susan, thank you very much. Thank you, Kara. I really enjoyed being here. Cellophane, Mr. Cellophane, should have been my name, Mr. Cellophane. So other than recycling, how can we deal with old plastic in a safe and environmentally friendly way? The answer might be biodegradable plastics. We're going to have more on that at our website, innovationhub.org. Mr. Cellophane should have been my name, Mr. Cellophane, because you 